Hosea chapter number 10 this morning. And uh, thank you so much for sticking with us uh, through this series. Uh, we got uh, four more chapters to go. And uh, I've just learned so much about who God is and just the love that he has for not only his people, the chosen nation of Israel, but how that love is is displayed even in the Old Testament for uh, us New Testament believers that know Christ and how God displayed that love through his son Jesus Christ uh, by sending him to die for us. And it's been, a, it's been a help to me because as I was going through the book of Hosea here, just seeing how God is at work in his people's lives and how much God continues to work in my own life as well. That God does not give up on us. That God does not throw us away. God does not toss us to the side. But God lovingly, compassionately, tenderly, continually pursues after us with a steadfast love, with mercy, with forgiveness, with um, just compassion as he pursues after us. And if you've been, if you've been with us through the weeks that we've been studying this, of course... This is kind of like the last prophet uh, before God had sent destruction to this nation of Israel uh, in 732. And for centuries, for years, God has been pleading with his people to return back to him. And he used Hosea, kind of a deathbed prophet, to use a strange circumstance by telling Hosea to go and marry a whore, and to use that as an illustration to show how much God has for love for his people to bring them back uh, to himself. And last week we looked at, uh, or a couple weeks ago, we looked there in Hosea chapter number 9 about their hopeless estate that God had left them in. I mean, if you can remember, um, they were sour grapes in the wilderness, um, they were the first fruit of the, of the fig tree and a palm tree in a desert. And here in Hosea chapter number 10, we kind of pick up on that, on that judgment that God left them in. But we're going to see a different side of that judgment. Um, God is going to bring some things right down to the point of it. And really, that's what I want you to focus in on this morning is what is your heart right now? What is your, what is your standing right now? With Jesus Christ, your relationship. You may say, well, you know, Mike, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, and, and he's my Savior, and I have a relationship with him, but how is that relationship? You know, I've, uh, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and last time I lived at home, I was, I think, 19, maybe 20 years old, so I haven't lived there at home for probably the past uh, 14, almost 15 years, and yeah, I still call my parents and I talk with them, but it's not like on a continually basis. It's, it's not something that, that I see them every day and I talk with them. Uh, I may call them up once a month or I may call them on a special occasion or something like that. And I think so many times, how is our relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, is it, is it, is it maturing? Is it growing? Is it steadfast? Is it, is it continually growing? Or is it kind of distant? 
And really, that's what I want us to focus on here on this morning about our relationship and how God calls his people to literally to break up his follow ground. Now, for the farmers that are here this morning, uh, many of you should already have your seed in the ground or you're putting seed in the ground. Um, I was talking with uh, Tim uh, Miller the other day, and I asked him, I said, do you got all the seed in your ground? He says, well, about 550 acres worth. I said, well, that's not too much. <laughs> but really, that's a lot of seed. And, you know, there's a lot of preparation that takes place as you put that seed in the ground. There has to be preparation that, that must take place. And God here is going to lay some things out for us in the book here in chapter number 10 about preparation that must take place as we continue our relationship uh, with him. So I would like to remind us here of the political situation that uh, the Israelites were in at this time. I mean, right now things were going great for them. Uh, the crops were coming in. Money was pouring in. I mean, it just seemed like God was blessing But we all know that that's not the case because they were worshiping false idols. And God continually goes and and points those things out to them. And their heart was was a million miles away from from following after him. And so things looked good. But militarily, the the country was kind of suffering. They were were becoming very weak. God gave us a lot of analogies about how the the nation was looking. Remember he said that they're getting gray gray hairs and, and they're starting to become weaker and weaker. And Israel knew this, so they started to look around at the other nations around. They started to look towards Egypt. They saw how much uh, military might that Egypt had. They looked towards Assyria. And they're thinking, boy, you know what, we could, we could definitely use some help. And so they started to call after Assyria and after Egypt. And they're asking help from them to give them strength, to give them uh, military power and a political situation. And but little do they know that Assyria would be the nation that God actually uses, a nation that they are looking for for help. God actually uses that nation to bring destruction uh, upon their country there. So we're going to look at a few things here about this. And, you know, in our life, um, God brings things in our lives to lovingly correct us because we're going off course. Here in uh, Israel's life and their nation, the sin that was running rampant in their life, God brought judgment in their life to bring them back on course. Well, so much in our lives as well. You know, we, we think about sin, and sin is such a, a little word, but it has such drastic consequences in our lives. I mean, when I think about, and I look back on my own life, and I think about the sins that I have been involved in, and things that, I've, that I have allowed myself to become deceived by, and I think, wow, why did I do that? Why did I allow those things to come into my life? Why did I, why did I fall prey to, to such small things like that and allow them to bring havoc in my life? You know, everybody knows what sin means. I don't think we need to go into great detail about that. But the interesting thing in our culture is how we view sin today. Sin has become almost synonymous with fun, deep delight, joy, and success. We have songs about sin. We have shows about sin. And even cities nicknamed after sin. So how do we view sin in our own life here? 
I mean, we all know what it is, but how do we view it? Do we view it as something that's very intrusive to God? Do we view it as something that, that causes disfellowship between us and God? Or do we just view it as something like, well, it's not really that big of a deal uh, to the Lord? Well, it was such a big deal here in Hosea's time that God brought judgment upon the nation because they refused to repent and they refused to turn back to him. You see, the issue with our culture is not that we do not know what sin means. It's that we do not know what sin is. People know sin is wrong, but what we view as wrong is very subjective. So the question for you, the question for me then, that we need to answer in order to diagnose what sin is and how to live right, to break up the fallow ground that is in our hearts is basically what makes our actions righteous before God? How do we live in a relationship that is righteous with God? How do we continue to pursue after God knowing that we are living our hearts right with Him? How do we do that? Well, Hosea is going to answer that here uh, this morning. You see, righteousness is the idea that we are acting rightly before God. And in order for us to properly battle for righteousness, we need to let the book of Hosea explain to us exactly how to do that, how to break up that fallow ground. Israel had become very blind to sin. It's so very evident in the book as, as God pulls things out and lays them out before his people of how, how quickly they become deceived and how blind that they become deceived to their own sin in their own life. And may we not be so blind as well to sin that is on our own life as well. Because I think it's very possible that even in a setting like this, that we can come and we can sing the name of Jesus and we can praise the name of Jesus, but yet still harbor sin in our own hearts and in our own lives and act as almost if God is not really that concerned about it. But he really is. Because he wants our relationship to be right with him. So this is where we'll pick up uh, the book of here in Hosea, Hosea chapter number 10. Let's look at a few verses here that I think will set the tone for uh, this morning. Hosea chapter 10, verse number 1, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. You know, it looks good. Everything is, is going great. I mean, you think of that word picture, a luxuriant vine. I mean, it's just blooming. Things are just looking so good. And it says the more fruit that, that Israel was getting, the more altars he built. Now, that's not a good thing. You know, that's a bad thing that we're talking about here. Because it's all these altars increasing in its altars of Baal worship, what Israel was involved in. They are thriving socially. They are building new temples. Pillars describe the strength of their buildings. Their country has been being much improved. I mean, they're, 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 they're expanding and they're, they're building new this, new that. They got a new mire and they got a new mall and all this kind of stuff going on. But yet, they have sin in their life. Things are looking good. But here's the problem. Notice what the verses here say. Verse number two says, their heart is false. I can't tell you how many times that, that I can look at that picture and I can describe my own self. I can look around and I can say, boy, things are going great. My lawn's looking good. My cars are running well. My family's doing good. 
but yet my heart is false before God. He says, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. You see, Israel fell into the trap of thinking that as long as they were doing well and being prosperous, they must not be sinning. And how often do we think of that in our own lives? So the first point here is the fact that there's a deception of sin. Sin is very deceiving. It it deceives us and it, it blinds us and it dupes us into thinking things that are not true. And many times in my own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, things seem like everything is going great. But yet my heart is false before the Lord. And God must continually remind me in my own life of the fact that my heart is not right with him. How can I be sinning when I have no worries like this? How can I be sinning when my relationship with my spouse is great? My school is going well. I got a promotion at work. How can I be sinning with the Lord? Well, there's a deception of sin. Sin is stealthy. It does not self-identify for you. The prosperity gospel that we hear so much about is a heresy because it basically tells us that if everything is going well in your life, then the fact that God is is blessing you. And so you must be right with the Lord. But we know that that's, that's not right. Because there were many times, even throughout God's word, that things did not go well for people, and yet they were right with the Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 10 through 11 says it this way. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. He says here that he used to see men go in and out of church. But yet these men that went in and out of church, he says that they were buried. They were wickedly buried. He says, saw the wicked buried. He says they were praised in the city where they had done such things. And he says this is also vanity. Why? Because they failed to see that their lives were evil. They failed to see that they had become content. They were not immediately punished for the evil they did, so they assumed it really wasn't sin. Listen to what God's word says well. You see, the real issue with the people Solomon here is talking about, the real issue with Israel and the real issue with us, it's not that we have become content. It's the fact that we have become deceived. God is not against contentment. God is a a God of of contentment. He's there to bring contentment into our lives. But it's the fact of when we go on through our life thinking that just because things are going well for us, and we're not taking a step back and we're looking at our heart relationship with Jesus Christ and saying, God, is there something in my heart? Is there something in my life that I'm being deceived by? That's where the problem lies. So we must always look inwardly inside to make sure 
that our relationship with Jesus is correct. To make sure that there's nothing that's hindering our relationship with him. Because there is a deception of sin. And our hearts are false. There was a song a few years back that uh, always said, listen to your heart. Don't listen to your heart because your heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. It will deceive you. And Israel was looking around. They say, boy, look at all of this stuff. God must be blessing us. But yet they're going in and out of the temple and they're practicing Baal worship. God says you're running after lovers. They were deceived. They had a, a, a false heart. Notice what a false heart produces. Look at this. Look what he says here in Hosea chapter 10, verse number 3 through 6. And this is where the danger of sin comes in. He says, For now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. In this passage, we see two things that because of the heart problem, because of the false heart, we see two things here. First of all, there's a heart problem. Look at verses 3 through 4 again. It says that they do not fear the Lord. Because of self-deception, because of a false heart, what that breeds in us is a lack of fear of God. Now, I'm not talking about the fact of like you're walking around thinking that you're going to get struck by lightning. But I'm talking about a reverential fear that you should have for God. A holy, lovable fear that you have for Him. It says that they have no need for a king. They are doing fine on their own. God is a good guy, but he has really proved to be powerless concerning most things. It says that they increased in their fruit. Remember, it's a luxuriant vine. They're increasing in their fruit. They're increasing in everything. They build the altars. We improve the country. We shirt up the pillars. We got this. This is their heart problem. They're self-deceived. Out of their heart problem, we see their reaction. Look at verses 5 through 6. Israel's heart was false. And because of this, it, it makes an action in their heart. What happens? Well, because their heart is false, it, they claim to worship God, but really they worship an idol. Hosea here is using an actual play on words here, and I love this. Notice what he says here. He says, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. What he's saying here, Hosea is saying, he's saying instead of calling the temple Bethel, which means house of God, he's calling it Beth-Avon, which means house of idolatry. So Hosea is saying here, he's saying, your heart has become so deceived, you become, your, your heart is so false. You look around, you say, we got all this, it's, it's fine. The, there's no fear of God. 
And Hosea says, you go into the altar, you go into the temple there, and instead of worshiping God, you're actually going in there to worship idols. You're going into the house of idolatry. Where did all of this start for them? Well, if you go back in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter number 12, right after the kingdom divides, remember we have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, ten tribes, two tribes, okay? So you have this divided kingdom there. And when the kingdom gets divided, you have different kings. So you have, the Bible tells us what happens is you have Rehoboam, you have Jeroboam. Well, Rehoboam there decides he's going to keep people from going to Jerusalem. And so what he does is he sets up some altars in Dan. He says, you know what? So the people don't have to go to Jerusalem, and I want to keep these people over here for myself. He says, I'll just set up some individual altars here in Dan, and we'll just start to worship God here. So what does he do? He sets up some golden calves, and the people start going. It's a little bit more convenient for them to go to Dan instead of going all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. It became convenient for them. And so now they began worshiping a cow and other, other countries around with their idol worship becomes uh, familiar with this. And so they, they adopt this Baal worship in their lifestyle. You see, that's the danger of sin. It's subtle. It comes so, so very small. It, it creeps in. It, it doesn't come in and go, hey, I'm sin. Here I am. It's very subtle. It creeps into our lives It begins to wrap its fingers around our heart. It begins to destroy little by little by little. You see, the humor of this passage is that Israel doesn't fear God at all. Their heart is false before the Lord. They don't fear foreign kings. But if you were to take away their idol, and I love this, this is so funny. He says that they don't don't, don't need a king, they don't need the Lord. But look at this. He says, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria, this idol that they worship, as a tribute to the great king. And Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of this idol. It's so funny here because this thing that they are worshiping and they're, they're bowing, it's kind of like this box of Kleenex, okay? Can you imagine how, how ridiculous this would be if me, I decided I was going to start worshiping a box of Kleenex? You'd be like, all right, this guy's crazy. No, this, this is not good. But if, if I took this and, I, and I, I, I bowed down to it and I, I gave food to it and I prayed to it and I, I gave money to it and I worshiped this thing. And then all of a sudden, Jesse were to come up to me and he'd be like, Mike, what are you doing? You're worshiping a box of Kleenex. And he would just take that and throw it in the trash. I'd be like, oh, my life is, is terrible. That's what's going on here. God says, if, if I take this idol away from you, he's going to give it to Assyria, I'm going to give it to the foreign king, their life is just going to literally just crumble and fall apart because this idol means so much to them. Can I ask you a question? What idols in our life are so important to us that if they were to be taken away, that our life would literally just crumble apart? Have we become deceived? Do we have a false heart before the Lord? Are there things in our life that are keeping us from having a, 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 a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ? 
Has things crept in in our lives that is keeping us from worshiping God like we should? That's what happened here. There's a danger of that sin. And that danger is the fact that our hearts become so deceived, our hearts become so false that we lose fear of God. I want to see here how much God loves the people here in this passage. Notice here, he picks this up here in Hosea chapter 10, verses 7 through 8. He says, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. You see, our God is too loving of a God to allow his people to worship things other than himself. If you have a husband or you have a wife or... or uh, If you have a mom or a dad that loves you and cares for you so much. And when they see things that are in your life that are not right. They see things in your life that are going to cause harm. And they lovingly warn you. They try to help you. That's love. I remember growing up as a teenager... There was times that, you know, I'd have a friend and I'd want to go do something with my friend. I had this uh, one friend of mine. He lived down the road uh, from me. His name was Adam. And he came over to my house one day. I think we might have been in fifth, sixth grade or something like that. And uh, growing up in New Mexico, we have these really big, tall weeds that grow. You know, like tumbleweeds you see like on the westerns, you know, drifting away. All right. So we have these uh, large tumbleweeds out there. Well, my friend Adam came over one day, and I had a can of blue spray paint. Two teenagers, spray paint. What do you think is going to happen, right? So we had this great idea that we were going to paint the weeds. So the weeds are green, and we're spraying them blue. Yeah. Well, my friend Adam decided it would be a great idea also to paint the side of our house. (laughs) So he's over there with a can of spray paint, and he's... Spray painting A, D, A. (laughs) Well, who do you think got in trouble for that? Me, right? So my dad's over there. He got a big trouble. I'm out there like scrubbing it with a scrub brush, trying to get it all off the wall and everything. But my dad, he's like, I don't think you should hang out with that friend Adam. But dad, he's like my best friend. No, he's not a good influence on you. You're painting weeds, (laughs) He's trying to lovingly help me in my life. God here with so much love, with so much compassion and tenderness towards his people. He says the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow up in their altars. Samaria's kings will fall like a twig on the sea, he says. The high places of Israel's sin will be destroyed. The weapons and the warriors of Israel will fall so much so that they will cry out to the mountains to fall on them in order to cover up their shame. And God will accomplish all of this by breaking the cycle of sin in their life through his judgment. Notice what he says here in verses 9 through 10. Look what he says. From the days of Gibeah... You have sinned. Remember that word Gibeah as we looked at a couple weeks ago? The sin of Gibeah, where the men of of the city came out uh, to to take that uh, uh, lady and they they left her for dead. And and the the man there 
took that lady and cut her up to 12 pieces and sent her out to the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, you have sinned, O Israel, there they have continued, shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. You see, God's love is seen in his discipline for his people. If God is bringing discipline into your life, he's doing it because he loves you. If there are things in your life that are happening, it's not because God is is trying to get even with you. It's not the fact that he's trying to, to just make your life miserable. He's bringing some things into your life because he knows that there are things that, that might be in your heart that are deceiving you. And he's trying to get you to turn your eyes off of those idols. And he's trying to get you so you turn your eyes to Jesus Christ. And he does this lovingly. And he does it in a, in a way that, that shows his compassion and his mercy towards us. For Israel here, he did it by bringing in judgment to the whole nation. By carrying them off into captivity into Assyria. By allowing their precious temple to be destroyed. God brought that judgment upon them. I want you to notice here a third thing about this. The fight against sin. Look what he says here in Hosea 10 through 11. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord. That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Remember the picture that God is painting for us here. Israel had become deceived by sin. Their heart became false and slowly sin had lost its effect on their lives. There's no fear of God now. Remember, this nation was experiencing great prosperity. Israel is a luxurious vine, God said. But God says that your days of easy labor and gluttony are now going to be over. Look at the word pictures that he uses here. He says, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. For those of you that that work with cattle or that uh, have cattle... You know, the, the cattle that, that love to, to thresh, love to stomp. He says, he says that this was a trained calf. I mean, it's not like he had to go over there and, and make, make the calf do the work. The calf just did it because it loved to do it. But now he says, those days are over. The party's over now. He says, I'm going to put you in the yoke. There's going to be some discipline that's going to come into your life now. He says, I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. You know, we see uh, during, especially during planting season, you see all the tractors and things that that drive around. And one of the things that you see is uh, in in the fields is, is uh, a thing that a tractor pulls and it's, it's got like fingers basically, or sometimes it's got disc 
And what it does is it digs into that ground and it rips up the soil, the hard soil. And God says, this is what needs to happen if you're going to need to fight sin in your own life. If you don't want to allow sin to become deceiving in your own life. If you don't want your heart to become false. You need to break up the fallow ground, God says. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. Do we see the symbolism here? God says, you reap what you sow. If you sow in your life righteousness and steadfast love, what do you think you're going to reap? Righteousness and steadfast love. But if you sow into your life deception, if you sow into your life sin, what do you think you're going to get out of it? Deception and sin. It's a law of sowing and reaping. If I plant an orange tree, I'm not going to get apples. It doesn't happen. So we need to take a step back and look at our hearts and say, God, have I become deceived? Now, this is where this gets really interesting here. What did God say about the nation of Israel in verse number one? He said, it's a luxurious vine. When you think about a luxurious vine, you, you imagine almost like going out and looking and you, you see this vine and it's growing and it's healthy and it's, it's, it's good and boy, it's producing good fruit. There's fruit. But in Israel's case, it wasn't good fruit. It was bad fruit. Sour grapes. And in fact, this vine, Israel loved to be called the vine. I mean, it just had a, had a great ring to it. it. It sounded like everything was going great. The vine that Israel is so associated with actually becomes their downfall because they're so proud of it. God says, I'm going to chop it down. I'm going I'm to get rid of it. He says, it's producing nothing but bad fruit, God says. You see, we cannot fight against sin if our heart is dead to it. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, Israel failed as the vine because it was never meant to be the ultimate vine. Jesus is. When Jesus came to the earth, he lived a sinless life among humanity. He was faced with the subtle call of sin, but he resisted. He was offered the deceitful lies, boasting comfort and success, but he fought against it. Those of you that know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we don't draw... From ourselves, we need to be drawing from the vine. 
We need to get all of our source from Jesus. We need to get our substance from Jesus. Not trusting in our own self, our own flesh, our own deceitful heart. We draw from Jesus. Because he says you cannot bear the kind of fruit that you're supposed to bear. Righteousness and steadfast love. If you're not attached to that vine. If you're not getting your source from that vine. You see, where our hearts were once incapable of anything due to our hardness, Christ has harrowed it out. He's broken up the the fallow ground. His blood has made us fertile for faith, and now we can resist all sin because we are no longer pulling from a false heart. We're able to resist sin. Do you believe that? Should we live in the power of sin anymore? No. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Christ has set you free. You should not live in the the dominion of sin no longer. But why do we? Could it be because we do not abide in Christ the way that we should? What sin in your life is it that so easily besets you? We all have them. I'm a liar. I love the praise of men. I struggle with my thought life. Should I have power over those things? Should I not be living in bondage to those things? Why do we? As a church here, we are supposed to be the image of Jesus Christ. We're to be projecting Jesus to a lost world. Do we? Are we besetting, we, are, we, are we being consumed by sin? Or is our hearts false before the Lord? Are we abiding in Christ? Israel was supposed to be used by the Lord in such a great way. But they became deceived. Self-deception in their own heart. Why did that happen? not abiding in the vine. Let's pray together.